This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Alan Pike, CEO and co-founder of Steam Clock Software, a mobile product design and development studio based in Vancouver, Canada. Alan, thanks for joining me. Hi, Chad. Thanks. Good to see you. So how are things going? Things are really good. It's the beginning of 2018, so get to do all of the fun. What did we accomplish last year? What are we going to accomplish this year? Stuff. Um, both on the personal side and the work side. Do you intentionally do that? Is that something that you do at the beginning of the year or the end of the the year? Yeah, for sure. Especially in the last couple of years when the company was young and it was pretty much just like establish ourselves and survive, you know, like the obvious, the goals were obvious, like Mm -hmm. uh, make enough money to (laughs) pay ourselves what we'd like to pay ourselves or or whatever. Um, And, but then once you get to sort of, a certain level of being established, then it's, I think, a lot more important to be very conscious about like, okay, well, we're doing okay. How do we do great? Or we're doing good. How do we do great? Or maybe we're doing great. How do we do a different great that we think is more uh, having bigger impact or whatever? So I, I think that, that that's something that has become a lot more important uh, in, in the size of the company, or at least in the stage of our life that we're in. And so that's, that's something we've been doing more. And also once I had the revelation like two or three years ago that uh, New Year's can bring things other than resolutions, which you know, people's New Year's resolutions tend to suck. Like, yeah. I will never again do X. And then, of course, they will eventually do it. And then it's spoiled. So a better approach to that helps a lot. I historically have avoided doing like big planning things traditionally at the end of the year or the beginning of the new year because it's also like that's when everybody's doing it or that's when no one's available. People are taking time off. And we've gotten in the groove of, we do a company-wide sort of retreat gathering, we call it summit, in the summer of every year. And that historically has been when we say like, how have things gone over the last 12 months? Is there something that we should be thinking about as a company or working on as a company? And we've actually started doing workshops at that event as well, where if we identify like, we really want to be better at feedback, then we might do a, a feedback workshop or something like that. And that's been good. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I think for us, for the company, definitely our our current cadence is like every six months we've been doing goal planning, which Mm -hmm. is not typical. People normally either do quarterly or yearly. Um, But we've been talking about maybe switching our every six months cycle to be in the spring and fall as opposed to in the winter and the the summer because we definitely have... I think better goals. (laughs) We come up with better stuff in the summer than we do in Mm -hmm. December and January. So it used to be that I I would not historically go on vacation at the, around the holidays at the end of the year, that kind of thing. But once we had kids and they fell into a school schedule and all that stuff that started to happen. And so I found that since I'm on vacation, I'm thinking about bigger picture stuff or just relaxed and then come back excited to, to go at the new year. I think I've personally been more fallen into sort of a cadence of like strategy, big picture stuff in the summer, but then like personal, what do I want to do better financial projections that kind of stuff is happening at the beginning of the year yeah and for me definitely i i think the when i think about the beginning of the year being a reflection and goal planning thing it's especially personal and also i take the chance i found it's actually 
people engage well if you, your first one-on-one that you have with, you know, if you're somebody who is a manager, your first one-on-one if you have with people, if you ask them, like, how was 2017? What do you think of 2018? Like, often people just kind of by default, that makes them reflective, like, hey, a new year. Um, and so you can leverage that a little bit for for talking about, like, hey, what kind of things do you want to do? How can we help you do those things, mm-hmm. um, regardless of the company's sort of formal plans and stuff? Yeah. So what do you hope to accomplish for Steam Clock in 2018? Well, we haven't finished and <laughs> portalized it, um, but I have a, my kind of c- categories of things that, that I want to do, and, and we're going to pick exactly how we want to try and do them. Uh, so one big thing has been uh, we want to invest more in products and shipping a higher quantity of products, especially. Um, that's something you know we're... I think quite similar to ThoughtBot in that uh, most of our revenue comes from doing client work and building mm-hmm. products for other people. And people come in with a project or product um, that they need built and we build that for them and we ship them. And we've gotten quite good at that. But because we we enjoy working on products so much and we obviously enjoy the idea of uh, having a little bit more control of some of our, our destiny as far as you know slow periods and, and busy periods and things like that, we have always wanted to have a bigger part of our our business be based on product and we've you know every year we've worked on at least a couple internal products but as we have gotten better at the consulting stuff we've gotten worse at actually shipping the products because in the early days it was like well no one has heard of us so whatever we made this thing let's see if it sticks and throw it out there Um, whereas as we've gotten more reputation we feel more protective of that Mm -hmm. and so that has been a damper on us actually shipping stuff and so we're prototyping things and we're you know experimenting but when we decide okay well this prototype is interesting uh, let's try and ship it. And then we start iterating it. Um, we uncover all of the ways that we could make it really great. Uh, and what we think of, oh, what is the steam clock quality product? Mm-hmm. And that's been kind of slowing down our ability to actually ship things. Mm-hmm. And so we have a few ideas that we're talking about. How do we kind of crack that? Uh, how do we both like reduce that? You know, ideally not reduce the bar for quality, but reduce the scope um, of the things that we're we're trying to do, so that we're getting more in the practice of shipping things. With client projects, they have strict budgets often, or at least they have you know guardrails budget wise. And so typically, it's like, okay, well, and th- we need to ship for this particular conference, or we need to ship for this particular budget range. And when we're doing internal stuff, we don't have that necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been talking about, well, let's set budgets. Like, let's treat it more like a client project. I think that. That was part of the origin story of when 37 Signals built Basecamp like 100 mm-hmm. years ago is they treated it like a client project. And so we've been thinking more about how do we estimate and treat ourselves a little bit more like a client to ship some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. When you approach the products that you do as a company for yourselves, are you trying to make them successful businesses or are you mostly thinking about it like this is something for us to work on? It's a marketing thing. How are you thinking about that? That's a really good question, and there is not complete agreement amongst the team as to how we calibrate that, which is something we hadn't even really fully realized until we started talking about in the last couple of months how much like there's because like how you want to do that really differs depending on whether or not you're focusing on short-term goals or long-term goals, I think. Like short-term, if you're a company that currently makes most of your revenue from consulting, it's really beneficial if you're just shipping stuff that is impressive, if it demos well, if it makes press. Uh, you know, right now, you know, early 2018, we should be working on something with blockchain and something with AR and VR, even if ever being a sustainable business is like categorically, it will never be. But it's going to get marketing attention and maybe get clients interested in getting us written up about and stuff like that. 
And so that is in tension with sometimes the a, a really clear win that we could provide to actual users might be, hey, there's this relatively boring sounding piece of software um, that we think is actually the current market leader is maybe really weak and I think we could do a way better job. And that's not necessarily going to interest anyone. Like, you know, the extreme examples are, you know, the companies that build like uh, time tracking tools and, and mm-hmm. some of these like software as a service products where there's already a million of them out there. But if you really could actually make one that was better than what's out there uh, in a really meaningful way, then that's a really smart business call to experiment with that. But it's just not interesting as far as marketing perspective goes, probably. So when I see other companies roll out, you know, time, especially consulting companies, we did a time tracking thing. It's just like, okay, of course you did. Like, or it's like making a bug tracker, right? Mm-hmm. Like every consulting company wants to make one uh, and you just couldn't resist doing it. And so from a marketing perspective, it's bad. But if it's, if it's something that a long-term goal, like if we have to think about in 10 years, because um, we've been around for eight years, so we can now actually start thinking, okay, what does mm-hmm. eight years out from now look like? Uh, would we rather be have leveled up even more as a consulting company and used the product development we do to either just work on things that we enjoy working on or to bring in more of the type of client work that we would like to be doing? Or do we want to have had a couple of those land and turn into businesses that make us less dependent on doing client work at all? And unfortunately, I think the thing we struggle with is we like both of the idea of both of those, <laughs> yeah. which is maybe a good problem to have. It makes it less obvious because in contrast, if we were like, we're sick of client work or the clients that we've been getting just are not meshing with whatever, or if there was a big economic downturn and suddenly there was no clients or not enough, then that would be like, okay, well, we have to be only doing things that are potential sustainable uh, businesses um, or that have a pretty good chance of it. Whereas because we have that sort of, well, you know, we do enjoy client work. We're good at it. Um, we have this easy trap of like, well, you know, as long as we work on something that might potentially be a good portfolio piece and we enjoy working on it, then that is still a net win. So mm-hmm. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that trade-off? Our thinking has certainly evolved over the years. We've been very fortunate in that we've had a few successes. So, you know, we've had things that we just do for portfolio. Mostly that happens after the fact because it was something we wanted to work on anyway, and we just knew we weren't going to be able to build a business out of it. So, oh, it becomes a marketing portfolio piece, and we justify it that way. But we've built Hoptoad slash Airbrake, which was the first exception tracking tool and went on to sell that. And Formkeep, we built that to about the same size and then sold that. And we've been running Upcase, which is our education site. And we have Hound. And as we've gone through and really evaluated, like, how do we spend more time on products? How do we balance products and client work? And, and then repeatedly had some minor successes and exits. There was a period of time where we thought we were working on products as a team because we liked to work on products. And I'm no longer convinced that that's actually the reason why. And what has made me not so convinced is the fact that we keep on selling them. (laughs) And one of the triggers to selling each product is it gets to the point a couple years in where having a team of people who wants to work on it and is excited and wants to grow it becomes harder and harder and we we end up saying like who wants to work on this and it's crickets so i now sort of have refined my thinking to the idea that we like to create new products and grow them in the early stages so go from concept to launch and grow it to a certain point and lo and behold that's actually what we really like to do for clients too 
And so I'm now thinking that the balance there is actually, if that's what we're going to do, building the model around that and sort of going into it with the expectation that if we think something's going to be revenue generating or whatever, like plan that we're going to launch it, we're going to grow it to a certain point, and then we're going to sell it is actually a much better business outcome than launching something, growing it to a certain point, and then letting it stagnate for two years. <laughs> you know, having sold FormKeep, we're very happy with the outcome, but it would have been much better had we sold it a year ago when revenue wasn't flat because we weren't working on it anymore. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And that's something that we've been starting to realize too is that what we do, I think, is very similar to what you do for clients primarily is building new products. We don't do a lot of, hey, here's this existing enterprise thing, make it slightly better. It's like either a redo of something that's already successful and they need to go to the next level, or it's uh, let's try this new idea. We think it could be a good business or it could uh, be a good plat- new platform. We do mostly mobile stuff. So often it's like bring our existing business to a new platform. And so that has made us both good at and we attract and retain people who enjoy doing that. But that's a different set of skills than we have a business that is churning along and we need to like just do the daily in and out of slowly growing um, or sometimes rapidly growing. But especially the slow growth, I think, is something that is not really the part of the product phase because often we we hand over the product mm-hmm. when we build it. It's like, oh, it's successful. It's getting traction. Customers like it. And then we transition. We often train up a team so they can maintain it themselves or uh, or maybe they put it into maintenance mode because they're like, you know, what? it's actually working pretty well for this purposes. We'll revisit in a year or two but it's, it's not that like what you would want as a customer obviously is for continual improvements and mm-hmm. we love the idea of doing that um, but we are not often actually doing it and so i think we would actually probably encounter if we were sort of more digging in harder into launching these products we'd probably encounter uh, that same situation that you have so the, the idea of like intentionally starting things with the idea that they're going to get sold is kind of actually like at first when you first mentioned that i was like well that's not that doesn't seem like a good model to have like you know you're going to sell this thing but that's whether or not they always admit it or not that's what a lot of venture-backed startups Mm -hmm. are doing anyway right a lot of venture-backed startups will claim we're changing the world but really actually they're building a thing and they know you know they're probably not going to independently be profitable ever it has to be part of a larger company or it's going to need 10 years of something and so their mentality is that the most likely success is is to sell and so having a realistic mindset about that and getting good at ramping those things up is actually pretty it's pretty interesting way of looking at it yeah when you started steam clock did you have that vision of working on products at the same time as doing consulting Yeah, for sure. Did you hope that one day you were going to have a product and not have to do consulting anymore? Absolutely. When we started the company, we were a lot more cynical about consulting than we are now because we had mostly only done consulting for like individuals that had an idea, but not actually a company and things like that. Like people that were pretty newbie at, at, you know, being involved in tech projects and things like that. And so we knew that there was demand for it and for mobile development, especially eight years ago, uh, there's still lots of demand now, but um, we knew there's a lot of demand. And so we knew we could get revenue for our, our venture by doing this consulting work. But it was very explicitly when we started as a, okay, we're starting a product company. We're going to build our own products. We're going to release them uh, to build a product company like uh, Panic or Basecamp or one of these product-oriented companies. But we don't want to take uh, investment that's going to require us to kind of promise to some uh, VCs or angel investors that we're going to have a, a thousand times growth and we're going to be whatever. We wanted to have more control over uh, the product direction and stuff of the things we were working on. So we said, well, doing client stuff for revenue is a good way 
to get the ball rolling and then we'll be a product company. And I was like very explicit. Did you have a product in mind at that point? Actually, interestingly, this is, I think, pretty atypical, but we very explicitly did not have a product in mind, partially because we both worked for like pretty large companies that had scary legal departments. Right. And the origin of the company was me and, and my co-founder, Nigel, wanting to start a company together uh, and both of us kind of being done with, with the corporate machinery or whatever. And so uh, I was working at Apple, which had like explicitly and multiple times told the team, do not make apps, do not release things on the app store, like don't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he worked for Activision, which is like a games company that is one of the many ones that makes you sign a thing that says like even if you have like a jam band on weekends and you make songs technically we own them wow and so that both of us were like you know what let's like we have a bit of runway from our you know stock options or whatever let's both quit at the same time start this company in his basement and then the first day first thing we did is we started i mean we talked around some ideas um but we started digging in doing a bit of prototyping uh the first prototype by the end of the second day we realized that it was impossible because of api (laughs) limitations but we were like yep that's expected right like and start prototyping the next one and like you know, it's always, as a company grows, you have occasional moments of nostalgia of like, oh, in the old days when it was small and things moved so fast. And I really, I would never go backwards because I really love our team now, but that was a fun time of like prototyping. We prototype three mm-hmm. or four things in the first couple of weeks. And then the fourth one, we're like, hey, this is a legit idea. And we actually built it and shipped it in a couple of months. And then it started making revenue and it was paying our rent uh, for a long time. And, and that was um, what? Uh, it's called Wedding DJ, uh, and it is what it sounds like. It's an app for playing the music at, at weddings, and especially for planning it all out. So, oh, okay, you're going to have a, a ceremony, you're going to have a pre-ceremony, you're going to have to have a playlist, and there's going to be Here Comes the Bride. And like that is something that a lot of people get asked to do once in their life, and actually you know, doing it is a high stakes affair. And so, mm-hmm. um, having the app to run that. So like I said, they paid our rent for a long time. We did update it and, and maintained it. And so, because the first thing was a success, we're like, okay, we've proven it. All we need to do is just keep doing this. But as the client work got better and I guess, you know, as reputation gets better, I'm sure you guys have seen the same thing is that you attract clients that have better business needs that uh, you can fulfill better and better and kind of have this self-reinforcing cycle where you can actually work on projects that are more and more satisfying on the client side, the like burning need to like get out of the client work and transition everything to product kind of reduced to the point that we still really love building products for our own and some of the things that that affords us and obviously insulates us from weird things that sometimes happen with client work like a client Mm -hmm. a common one that is just one of those things that we just have no control over is like the person who's running the project at the client leaves the company and then the person who takes over has different opinions that conflict with the direction we got previously and then that imperils the project mm-hmm. and like that's just something that doesn't happen if you control your own products right right and so there's, there's still motivating factors and then also the obvious like you know what if something financial changes in the world and people aren't there isn't as much demand for our services it would be nice to have backup things but that's a lot more cerebral than the sort of uh, i don't want to have to deal with this you know the very first couple some of the very first clients that we got where we weren't quite firing on all cylinders mm-hmm. yet so so yeah take that that's basically the super long answer like was that the original idea to become a product company it's like absolutely Mm-hmm. Um, and then we sort of have always kept the flame going and we're always, you know, keep working on stuff, but the urgency faded mm-hmm. as is, I think, I think that's a pretty common story for, for people who do client work, whether it's in the context of a studio like ours or yours, or in the context of individual freelancers, like it's super common for someone to say, Oh, I want to work on my own products, but I'm going to do some freelancing to help. And then as they get better at freelancing, they get paid more, it becomes more and more compelling to keep doing mm-hmm. freelancing. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's not a, it's not a horrible problem to have, but it, it's a, it 
makes it more important for you to really actually start doing that kind of goal planning and thinking like, all right, why am I doing this? Where do I want to be in 10 years? You know, existential stuff. And building successful businesses and products takes longer than I think people realize. And what I'm hearing is had that first product been super successful, you might not have continued on the consult, like you wouldn't have needed to. No, and we wouldn't have, I don't think. Right. But the time needed to build a successful business or to build the second app in the portfolio that will generate just as much revenue as the first one takes a lot of time. Whereas with freelancing or consulting, it's much more immediate. You're going to get revenue. As soon as you sign the client and start working, if you've done things right, you're going to get paid pretty quickly and you're going to start generating revenue right away. And I, the way I sort of call it like the treadmill, like then you get on the treadmill <laughs> of consulting and you, it's hard to get off at that point. Yeah, for sure. Especially, you know, if, once you start growing a little bit and then you start hiring and building a company culture that is good at the consulting work, yeah. uh, which is something that we hadn't, like we were always kind of a little bit aware of, but now that we're at like 10 people uh, and it's, I'm sure even more at 20 and, and 30 and as it continues, you start having culture that extends beyond the founders. The founders, you know, the two of us both always were like, we're product people and we're about building products. And we've intentionally built a client services company that focuses on building new products and being creating new stuff, right? So that DNA went into the culture of the company, but then you end up hiring people and retaining people that are good at shipping client products if that's mostly what they're doing and the people who enjoy that and people, you know, there's probably, there's certainly, even though I don't have a lot of actual examples, but like there has to be people that we have, you know, put out a job ad and we're like, Hey, we're hiring somebody to, to work a steam clock. And the person either knows or has read or can tell from our website that we mostly do client work. And they're like, you know what? I don't want to work on client stuff. I want to hold my own products destiny and do bold new things or whatever their mentality is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, me, <laughs> I would never have applied to steam clock. Cause I'm like, I'm a product person. I want to make right. new products. Cause I had yet to have that revelation. You can have some pretty satisfying, um, if you have the right clients and the right projects, you can have a satisfying product development experience in the context of client work. Mm -hmm. And so I would have never applied to a company like steam clock. And so there's not that we need more me's necessarily, but people who are sort of like, as an aside, when trying to like explain this type of culture, are you familiar with the idea of stables and volatiles? Yeah. 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 So this is something I love, uh, Rands and Repose, uh, excellent engineering management blog. And he writes about how the, every team needs some stable people, not, you know, some stable people that are able to iterate and ship and keep delivering and, and they and they will move forward and execute. And they need some volatile people who will ask hard questions and be disruptive in a good way. And then mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we we're, why are we still using, uh, you know, we're using, still using subversion. Like, what are you thinking? Like we have to be moving to, to get, like, we should have done this 10 years ago or whatever the example mm-hmm. is in any given team. And so you need some of each of those. And I think the client services work tends to overemphasize, or at least like, unless you're thoughtful about it, it tends to overselect for the stable people, the people that, you know, maybe a client will say, Hey, we're going to do this thing in this way that doesn't make sense. And then somebody who's more quote, quote, volatile will be like, I refuse. And it's like, well, that's hard. That's yeah. hard to deal with your project manager. Right. Whereas if you're as a product company, you don't necessarily want people just unilaterally refusing to do things, but you do want people to, to agitate more. And it is more beneficial to a product company. If somebody is pushing the envelope and 
and saying, you know what, I know we decided this was the budget or this was the timeline, but like, let's have a really hard conversation. It's like, is this, does it, is this the best product for our customers to ship this week or really should we push it back? And like, there's all these forces that tend towards creating really great product companies that are not as positively reinforced when you're dealing with sort of a stereotypical client work. Right. So that's something that we've been starting to try and think about uh, if we're continue to evolve in this direction of being a product company and becoming more thoughtful about, you know, doing that despite this, not necessarily that we economically have to, but it's something that this kind of company we want to build and iterate towards. It, one of the things that we've been thinking about is like, how can we continue to move towards working on client work that does incentivize that type of thinking, mm-hmm. you know, both clients and projects where that they actually are interested in hearing us say, hey, should we even be building this at all? And that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, which is something that some clients just don't want that. They're like, you know what? Our board already decided we're building this right. and it's going to succeed or fail. And we need you to just type the code. And that can be really profitable to do that kind of work. But mm-hmm. um, if we want to have people uh, and practice our own uh, skills at some of that a little bit more volatile, asking hard questions and pushing the envelope and being involved in some more of the strategy of should we be doing this? How do we want to do it? Then I think it will be helpful to continue pushing towards uh, trying to attract projects where that's actually something we do in our client work too. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you were at Apple before starting Steam Clock. Yes. It was about three years, Mm -hmm. which at the time was like the second longest job I'd had, but now (laughs) that was like eight years ago. um, But it was from just before the app store. So like from iOS one, basically. Um, So just after, I guess the iPhone came out to just after the iPad came out, um, and that was a lot of what I worked on there, was in the apps group for iWork, working on the I- iPad. And what made you decide to go to Apple? What were you doing before? Um, before, I was working at a small company called Discovery Software, and I still have like a really fond spot in my heart for them because they took a chance on this. Like I was in high school when I started there, and they hired me as like this QA I mean, I think I was probably making you know, like minimum wage or something, but I was so excited to have a programming job and I was like writing bad PHP. And, like, <laughs> um, it was a lot of fun. And so I'd work there all the way through university, basically half time doing that and half time doing university, kind of paying my tuition with the money I was making doing software, which was kind of an unusual case, I guess. But I knew that when I finished school, I had to think about like, okay, am I starting my own thing now or do I want to try and like level up to like help run this this small software company I'm working at or maybe something else and Apple was like my I was like in probably peak fanboy Mm -hmm. uh, mentality at that time Uh, and like iPhone had just come out and so I always suspect I didn't probably want to work at a large company or at least like you know, early in my career, like I wasn't super optimistic about being like the base level employee at a giant, you know, mm-hmm. massive company, but I was open to the idea and I was kind of curious about it. And so when uh, a job opening came up to work on Apple that like almost exactly described the skills that I had built at this company, I was like, well, let's try it. And worst case scenario, I have an interesting adventure. And that was exactly what it was like really cool adventure, like met really smart people or work with really smart people, learned lots, like but probably the most important thing I took out of it is like now I have such a better understanding of what it's like to be in a large company and like what, how large companies think. And when a large company does something that the, you know, maybe the press is like, Oh, it's still so stupid. Why did Apple or IBM or whatever company, like how could they think that? And, but like, I'm way better now at being like, well, probably this is 
what the approach was. And there was one team who thought this, and there's at least some people who thought they shouldn't do that, but there's probably these constraints. And like, Mm -hmm. so it was really useful for like being able to understand companies. But, um, as a, especially younger in my career and being like super excited about this idea of like iterating products and shipping things in this sort of volatile, like I want to make changes and stuff like that. It's like, I was just an annoying kid. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Oh, this font size is too small. I'm like filing bugs in their internal radar system. Like this font size is too small in this app. And they're like, Alan, like, stop. Why are you like annoying the designers? And like, I would go sometimes over and I would talk to the designers or if I just walk past their office and I would see, and they would be like, Oh, Hey, come in. And they're like showing me some mock-ups and they're like, Oh, could we build this? I'm like, Oh, that'd be really cool. Yeah. We should totally build that. And then my boss would see me and she's like, get out of there. Stop talking to them. And cause I would give them bad ideas. Like, or mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah, we can totally build that. And then it's like, ends up being that there's, this is part of some long political fight to like right. remove that entire feature. And I'm like, they're like, Oh, well, but Alan Pike said that you can. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a jerk about it or anything, but it definitely, the things that I enjoyed the most about the job were not the things that the company needed intermediate engineers doing like mm-hmm. they need intermediate engineers that really really know one thing well and they like do it exactly and like they just refine their skills at executing what they're being told to execute and like i wasn't i wasn't there yet mm-hmm. i don't think mm-hmm. how has your time at apple helped steam clock um definitely that part about understanding how larger companies think uh, obviously every large company is is different but it's helped a lot when we come in because often we're being hired by companies that are established and they're like hey we know how to do one thing really well but we don't know mobile uh, development so come in and, and help us build this product or, or, or do this project and if you come in with a small company mentality of the way that like maybe a five to 20 person company thinks mm-hmm. and works and the things that they say and the dangers to a project on a company like that. And if you come into a really big company with that mentality, you're probably going to get sideswiped at some point by something like the person who you're talking to whose boss's boss didn't even know the project existed mm-hmm. or not being able to trace a line from the thing you're working on to the core business of the company or, you know, different departments. There are already being a department out there that's working on something similar and things like that. And there's all these things that like in order to succeed in the context of a big company, it helps a lot to have that kind of heads up awareness about all the other stuff that's happening that you don't see. Cause the, the, the individual people you're talking to often are not even as aware as we are about it because we work with enough different companies and that was kind of like the seed of that was working uh, at Apple. And then obviously like, you know, having had um, the experience working with smart people and just like practices, both the practices that were good that I kind of like picked up from Apple that then bring into my work here, but also something that was kind of, you know, I think was a good thing was some of the things that I saw that they didn't do. Like Mm -hmm. often I found that really great teams or really successful teams often don't have as much magical secret sauce as you would think beyond being thoughtful and working hard and communicating well. Mm -hmm. People think, oh, Apple must use some really amazing version control system. It's like, no, actually they're using subversion and it was awful, right? Like they should have been using Git by then and they're using subversion or like, oh, Apple must have some like really amazing automated testing suite. It's like, no, it was almost all manual, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, what, how, you know, and now as they've scaled up, like they've had some more famous QA, maybe failures that, that Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, they shouldn't have had more automated testing than they did, but they were able to, they were able to achieve things often using 
a lot of the same nominal like surface level techniques and tools that everyone else was using, um, but they were applying them with better communication and more thoughtful, more time put into design and product thinking and just a, a spirit where people cared about certain things and that got prioritized in the product. And mm-hmm. so being able to see the non-magic of that was super helpful just mentally when thinking like, we want to achieve this. And I think people early in their careers, maybe who haven't seen that yet can sometimes be daunted by the like, oh, but we're not Apple or we're not whatever. It's like, well, it's mm-hmm. just a bunch of people working hard <laughs> and trying mm-hmm. a lot, you know, in, in some ways. I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, as a, as a mobile app design and development company, it's probably helped to have Apple on your resume. Right. Yeah, for sure. Especially early on. Like, I think it's far enough ago now that, I don't know, maybe people still notice it or care, but especially when we had no portfolio, it was extremely beneficial to be able to say, well, I worked at Apple, so you should just trust me. (laughs) Um, And people would be like, okay. And they did, Uh, which was, you know, it's good that I I did know what I was doing, Mm -hmm. Uh, but now, now we can more rely on here's the things that we've done. But yeah, that was hugely beneficial early on when we're talking to to, to clients because people want to know what you've done. And, and that's kind of was a big benefit. Mm Mm-hmm. Was there anything that you sort of had the inside track on technology wise or whatever that let you build your business? Um, I don't think we really leveraged any of the internal stuff that I knew about that mm-hmm. I wasn't probably legally supposed to leverage anyway if I knew <laughs> right. internal stuff. Um, that Part of that is just because they lock things down pretty tightly and so you don't typically know about things very far in advance before they ship unless you need to. Right. But I think sort of technically wise, obviously having worked on, for example, like I was building iPad apps before the iPad launched, like, Mm -hmm. so that was pretty good just in that, oh, you want me to build an iPad app? Well, I have more experience than almost anyone that doesn't work at Apple basically doing that, at least as far as like calendar time um, and what type of, you know, if it happens that you want to build a, (laughs) an office suite, which is what I was working on. I was (laughs) working in the iWork group, almost never did anyone actually, we did very little work even related to that. So Mm -hmm. the product domains obviously are are different, but technology wise, I think that um, partially because we are often working on new products that have some relatively small teams shipping right. relatively well-scoped but high-quality new products. Um, it's like mostly what we do at Steam Clock. And at Apple, mostly what they do is they maintain large existing pieces of software. Or they, when they do launch new stuff, typically it is relatively large. Right. Um, just because they have such a huge user base, you can't do like a quick... Unfortunate thing about big companies that size is that they can't experiment the way that a small mm-hmm. company can. They try sometimes, but it's really hard for them to just build something uh, that's 10,000 lines of code and, and find right. out if people want it. <laughs> like, right. you know, if Apple launches something that suddenly, um, you know, at one point we over-provisioned something like 20 times the number of servers we needed for something just because we didn't know. So it's like, well, mm-hmm. we can't afford to be embarrassed by it going down. So what's the most we think we could need? And it's just like poof, times and whatever, mm-hmm. some ridiculous number. Mm-hmm. And that kind of is a different sort of domain than, than we work in, thankfully, today. So you mentioned Steam Clock is 10 people. Yeah. Where do you want to go? Where do you see it going? Do you have your sights set on being a thousand people? I've long said, and I still feel this way, that I don't want to run a company that is more than 150 people Mm -hmm. uh, ever. Even if I have the opportunity, like maybe like it's some different version of Future Allen that you never say, but like not in the next 10 years would I ever want to do that because 
there's this like I'm sure like people have at least probably heard of the idea of Dunbar's number, which is yeah. like if there's a group that is roughly 150 people or less, then it's possible for all the people in that group to know each other, at least know of each other. Uh, and you can build relationships and communicate in uh, a fairly traditional ways and collaborate in fairly traditional ways at 150 or less. And in the companies that we've worked with and in the, the teams that I've been involved in, that magic number has kind of played out in that if you have a company that is 150 or less then it's just a totally different way that companies think and behave and communicate and collaborate that just is something that i enjoy much more and that the bigger resources you get on the other side of that cavern or canyon mm-hmm. i guess i should say are f- interesting and fun and maybe one day i'll be like no 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 i want to you know change self-driving cars or some whatever and so i'm going to need to have such a big team in order to do that that you have to but i have so far just really enjoyed working with with small enough teams that i think that 150 person max is like the most that i would ever and like we're 10 now so like that's such a huge gap from now that i'm not super concerned about hitting it um the thing that's more close to our horizon is we're basically at the limit or within the next five people will be at the limit where we need people who don't report to me we're basically the micro Dunbar's number was like, we're basically one team mm-hmm. uh, and everyone knows each other, what each other is working on and we all work together and everyone reports to me, not because I necessarily am a control person, almost because I'm not. And people are pretty autonomous and we're pretty laid back, but you can't have 20 people all reporting to me. Like effectively that means 10 people report to me and 10 people will have no manager and it's chaos, mm-hmm. uh, which is some companies do that intentionally, but I do think it's really important to support people. And so the main question we have, which I think we've answered in the affirmative, yes, we do want to grow past that number, but that's the thing we've kind of been asking ourselves for the last two or three years. Like, do we want to grow beyond 10? Do we want to grow to the point where there are middle managers? Because as soon as you do that, you have a big cost in communication and collaboration over if you had a company that was just at that limit where you're all one team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason that we made the decision to go beyond that isn't necessarily because we had a project we wanted to do that required it or anything like that. It was simply because we were getting to the point where people we'd hired as junior or intermediate people five years ago were starting to become senior people. And eventually, if we don't give them more opportunities to take on more challenges, to collaborate with larger teams, maybe to mentor people, then they're probably going to get bored, mm-hmm. basically, including me. <laughs> I'll eventually be right. bored too, right? And so that's something that like we hummed and hawed and we talked about all the pros and cons. And eventually we were like, hey, our best people will eventually leave unless we keep growing. So at least slowly. And mm-hmm. I don't know how we would deal with that if we were getting to 150, like right. maybe start spinning out companies or something. Um, but at 10, I think the natural thing to do is to figure out what does a multi-level version of Steam Club mm-hmm. look like. Is figuring that out and doing the structure the blocker now, or is it really just the business side of things, making enough sales to support a larger team? No, it's the figuring it out. The sales side... I mean, you know how it is in consulting. Like, there's sometimes just random factors. So you, it's really hard to predict exactly how much you can grow or whatever. But we've always intentionally erred on the side of signing work that we're excited about or that are projects of a certain nature or things like that. So we're almost always leaving sales on the table mm-hmm. compared to what we could sign if we were like, no, 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 we need to make this level of sales or we need to make payroll or something. Like, if there's some reason why we need to make sort of more sales. We at least at a, on the six month time scale, we almost always can accelerate that if we want. Um, so if we decided like, Hey, it's important to us to hire to up to double, we could normally probably do it without a ton of risk. The more question is, 
okay, well, if we did double, like, because if we just do it naively, our product quality is going to go way down. Mm-hmm. Then we do have a problem because the doubling won't last because then, right. you know, your reputation goes down and the clients don't resign and, and stuff like that. And so, like, the simplest way to do it, I think, is to just slowly, like, we've had times where we have grown in big chunks. Like, we went from, think, three to six really quickly and it was fine. But I think going from 10 to 20 is, like, the time to, like, tap the brakes a little and, like, kind of watch yeah. as the thing evolves through that time. And then if we want to keep growing faster once we get past 20, then and we'll have somewhere in place in that either someone on the team now will have figured out that they are more comfortable being or that they enjoy being in a more leadership role where people they do one-on-ones and things like that or we'll have hired somebody and found a role a mix in between what is a good fit for that person and then what's a good fit for steam clock that we kind of have some scaffolding to start building a, an organization around that's great if people want to learn more about steam clock or follow you or do anything like that how can they do that yeah, that's a good question. Um, you can find uh, steamclock.com, obviously, at website, and alanpike.com is my website, Alan, A-L-L-E-N. Uh, and you can also find me on Twitter is a good way, uh, at apike. Alan, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time and the stories, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Yeah, thanks, Chad. You can find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 264. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.